This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and for what I think promises to be a very special event with our guest, Alan Hollinghurst. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the support of the Hawthornden Literary Retreat for this event. Um, this evening, we're celebrating the recent publication of uh, The Stranger's Child, Alan's first novel since winning the Man Booker Prize in 2004 for The Lion of Beauty. Alan Hollinghurst read English at Oxford. He was deputy editor of the Times Literary Supplement from 1985 to 1990, and his other novels are The Spell, The Folding Star, and The Swimming Pool Library. Um, the format for this evening's event is one with which I'm sure you're broadly familiar. Um, we're going to talk a little about his new novel. Um, Alan will read uh, an extract from the book. We'll be sure to leave plenty of time for questions from the floor, and afterwards there will be a signing in the signing tent, which is adjacent to this venue just here. Um, just a couple of, of parish notices, if you don't mind, just to make sure, if you haven't checked, that your mobile phone is switched off, or at least on silent. And secondly, um, if you are inclined to tweeting, um, perhaps you might be able to resist doing so, at least until we get to the Q&A session, so as not to uh, disturb other people. Um, but first of all, please join me again in welcoming Alan Hollinghurst. Um, I wonder, perhaps, at the beginning, could you say, was there any one, or more than one, particular event, anecdote, story that triggered the writing of your novel? Um, I don't think there was a, a, any one thing. Um... I didn't quite know what to do after finishing my last book, and one, one of my convictions was that I, I didn't want to commit myself to writing another big 500-page book, and I thought I would write some short stories, and I had, seemed to have various ideas for short stories, which was a new thing for me, and I did, in fact, write one, and then I, other ideas that I had for short stories started sort of twitching and joining up, and, and I saw that I sadly, I had another novel on my hand. <laughs> and, um, but it, it was a novel which I think retained something of that original um, s short story um, impetus. I, I, uh, it's a novel which is constructed in five episodes with sometimes as, as much as 40 years between them. And I, I saw it as, as originally as being sort of five sections of 50 pages or so, uh, which would make a 250-page novel, which I would write in a couple of years. Um, and in fact, it turned out to be nearly 600 pages and took me about four and a half years. Um, but um, I suppose it was something to do with growing older and being increasingly struck by um, ironies and shocks of time and the fallibility of my own memory. And um, this is very much a book about things that have happened in the past and what people can remember about them. Um, and um, I'm giving you all sorts of different things here. Um, another thing that I, I knew I wanted to do was to write something about that subject, which is so irresistibly uh, affecting and uh, upsetting, which is the Great War. 
but I knew that being the sort of writer I am, I wasn't going to write a, a bird song or something. I wasn't going to write a, a novel which actually reenacted the Great, Great War, um, but something which my original idea was that you would see a group of characters before the Great War and then rejoin them 10 years later and um, see what had happened to those who survived in the interim. Um, and um, when I realized that one of them was going to be a, a poet who was killed in the war, then the whole question of um, a literary reputation and um, its uh, vicissitudes um, came to see to me an interesting way of pursuing the story much further. So actually the book covers about a century in the end. As you say, it has five, it's in five sections, the first of which is just before the Great War. Could you just lightly sketch in the other four sections and, and how you arrived at those particular periods? I don't want to say sort of too much about the actual story but, um, because of those... I mean, I will read a bit from the first section of the book, but for, for those who haven't read the book yet, um, you know, I don't want to spoil the story. The first section is, is in 1913, the second in 1926. Um, it's on the eve of the, the general strike, um, but that is not the concern, really, of any of the, the people who are um, taking part in that episode. Both the first two sections, rather modelled on my great friend Edward St. Aubyn's novels, take place over one weekend, one weekend party. Um, the third section takes place in 1967 um, and is on the for reasons which I think will become apparent, is on the, the eve of the passing of the Sexual Offences Act. And um, a, a very significant thing in our sort of social history. Um, and I think by then we're, in a, we're obviously in a very different world from that in the, the second part of the novel. Um, the fourth section takes place at the end of 1979 and early 1980 and the final section, sort of just the other day, 2008. Um, the title comes from Tennyson, and there's an anecdote about him in the book. Um, and I, I had the sense that Tennyson is floating above the novel as a sort of an influence on the novel. Would that be right? Yes, the, the novel's title, The Stranger's Child, comes from In Memoriam, that very beautiful section, I think it's 101, where Tennyson imagines the sort of beloved landscape after he and his family and people he knows have left it and pictures the, the stream still running on down, down the hillside, the seasons changing, um, until at a, some future date the landscape grows familiar to the stranger's child, um, but to say not only to someone we don't know, but to a further generation of people we don't know. Um, and it seemed to me a beautiful sort of summing up of, of one of the things the book is about, which is sort of our own futurity, our, our own, in the case of a literary reputation, what is going to happen, it's entirely out of our hands, what, what, what happens um, to our name in the future. Um, the book begins in, as we restricted, the Georgian period, but I mean the, the sort of, what we still think of as the Edwardian period before the Great War, and Tennyson is really invoked, I suppose, as a, as a great Victorian figure. Um, and the mother of the, the three young people who feature in the first part of the book um, actually saw Tennyson on her honeymoon. They were crossing on the ferry to the Isle of Wight. And um, her newlywed husband went, went outside on, on deck to have, have a nose around and, and got talking to this tall, scruffy, tramp-like figure who turned out to be 
the greatest poet in England. Uh, and this is a sort of fa treasured family anecdote, which is, which is trotted out on various occasions. Um, it also forms, the, the Tennyson strand in the book for, forms part of a sort of tribute to the wonderful Scottish poet Mick Imlar, who's um, a close friend of mine who died a couple of years ago. And Tennyson was a, a, an enthusiasm that we'd shared for 30 years. And uh, Mick did a, a marvelous selection of Tennyson's poems for Faber. And he also wrote a wonderful poem which appeared in the TLS on the centenary of Tennyson's death in 1992 called In Memoriam, Alfred Law Tennyson, which I also quote from at the end. So yes, you're right, he's a sort of presiding spirit in various ways. One of them, of course, is that at, at, at the center of the book is a, a poem which is written by the young poet who is going to die, Cecil Valance, um, apparently to a young girl, um, but the, the reader very much suspects actually to the young girl's brother with whom he's been having a passionate affair. Um, and whilst in the first section of the book just describes the weekend where Cecil Valance comes to visit the family of George Saul um, in Stanmore in the sort of outermost suburbs of North London. And um, one evening after dinner, he's, he's persuaded to read from In Memoriam to the, uh, to the other people there. And of course, In Memoriam is sort of the great poem of, of great elegy, elegy to, to male friendship couched often in extraordinarily sort of erotic terms. So that, that also was a, that poem itself is a significant sort of presiding presence, I think, in the book. And you mentioned that you wanted to write about the period of the Great War, but without actually writing about the war itself. And as you say, the first section is set in 1913. It's, it's still a very, it's a period that's very familiar to us through books, films, and so on. What were the challenges there? Were, any, were there any obvious pitfalls you sought to avoid? That's interesting. Yes, I think, I mean, there were with both the first two sections in a way, the 1913 and 26 sections, but particularly with 1913. When I started writing it, I found that I was just producing kind of pastiche E.M. Forster. Um, and it struck me that, of course, our whole sense of how people lived, spoke, behaved in 1913 comes from reading novels written in that period. And there is something irreducibly literary about our sense of the past. Um, and I had quite a strong sense that actually I didn't want to write pastiche Forster. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be by me. Um, so that there was a certain amount of sort of um, excising or exorcising of, of Forster in, in writing that section. I think when I got him out of the way, it, it all sort of happened more easily. Um, there are nonetheless all sorts of Forsterian references in, in that part of the book. Would you like to read? Shall I read a bit of it now? This comes from the end of the first section. We, the, the reader's been privy to um, scenes where George, George is about three years younger than Cecil. He's a second year undergraduate at, at uh, King's Cambridge. Cecil is a graduate student um, doing some mysterious research on the Indian mutiny. Um, and George has never had a friend before, really. So the, the occasion of his bringing a friend to, to stay um, at the Saul's house is, um, is rather, a, 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 to them, a very dramatic one. Um, in fact, it has all sorts of drama, which other members of the family are completely unaware of. Um, Cecil's, the, the Valances live in, in a hu huge um, Victorian 
country house in Berkshire called Corley Court. And young Daphne, the 16-year-old younger sister of George, um, is fascinated by one feature of, of, of this house which keeps being mentioned, which is the, the jelly mold um, ceilings in the dining room. Um, I'm not sure she quite envisages what they are, or indeed that I do. Um, but um, they're part of its exotic um, appeal to her. Um, on Cecil's last evening, the Sunday evening, they, um, everybody else is mysteriously in otherwise engaged. And uh, Cecil invites Daphne to go out into the garden with him whilst he smokes his cigar, which he doesn't want to do in the house. Um, and to her um, great surprise, she's totally innocent about anything to do with love or sex, um, makes, sort of makes a pass at her and starts um, kissing her and feeling her up, or um, as she puts it, licking her mouth and feeling her bottom. Um, she has a long, uh, almost sleepless night trying to sort of resolve what's been going on. Um, decides in the end that actually she is being rather a, a fool. She's being rather a child, which is the, the word that Cecil keeps using to, um, when he speaks to her, he calls her child. Um, I realize that actually, of course, Cecil must be madly in love with her. Um, I think all you else you need to know is it, when they go out for a walk in the garden, Cecil falls down a step and treads on Daphne's foot, bruising it rather badly. Um, earlier on, she's given him her autograph album, which otherwise contains only the autographs of people like the local curate and so on, um, and asked him if he'll write something in it before he goes. And he says he'll see what he can do. She suggests he might like to write some occasional verse, which is a term she's rather pleased with herself for knowing. Um, Frida Saul is the mother, George and... Daphne are the two, the middle and the youngest child, Hubert, the eldest, who's working in the city. The father has died some years before. Um, there are two other members of the household, Veronica, who's the housemaid, and Jonah, who's the boy. She slept unusually late, slept on with only a momentary murmur and swallow through the rustling and bumping on the landing, the fact of voices downstairs, but when she at last came up into fuddled life, her little clock said a quarter to nine. After that, and a further helpless three minutes of gaping sleep, she found she had attuned to something, to the loss of something she was amazed to find she had already grown used to, the noise of Cecil in the house. Of course, he had gone. There was a thinness in the air that told her, in the tone of the morning, the texture of the servants' movements and fragments of talk, and all her plans for him were thwarted. The witty thing she was going to say to him as he climbed into the van for the station. It would be weeks, perhaps months, before she saw him again, moaning with a lover's pangs, as well as with a certain sulky relief at this tragic postponement. She thrust herself out of bed and onto her instantly tender right foot. In the thick of her solitary breakfast, with the maid looking in once a minute to see if she'd finished, there was George coming past the window, back home from the station, and seeing Cecil off. He had a bleak, far-away look which annoyed her the moment she saw it and felt its meaning. It was a time of reckoning for him. His guest, his first one ever, had left, and now the family could take him back and tell him, more or less, what they thought of him. He would be moody and delicate, unsure who to side with. And then she remembered her book, Oh, what had Cecil done with it? Had he written in it? Where had he put it? She was suddenly sick with anger at Jonah for packing it with Cecil's other books, 
Even now, it will be trapped unbeknownst between other books in his suitcase in a crowd of other cases on Harrow and Wealdstone Station. Oh, Veronica, she said. Sorry, miss, said Veronica. No, not that, said Daphne. Did you see, did Mr. Valance leave anything for me? My autograph book, I mean. Oh, no, miss. And knotting her duster in a pretense of interest. Is that the one with the vicar in? What, said Daphne. Well, it has a number of important men in it. She didn't quite trust Veronica, who was more or less her own age and treated her more or less like a fool. I'll ask, miss, shall I, Veronica said. But then George looked round the door, gave a rueful smile and said, Cecil says goodbye. He hovered there, feeling the atmosphere, seeming uncertain whether to share the subject of Cecil any further with his sister. I'm afraid I slept somewhat badly, said Daphne, aware of her own adult tone, and then I must have overslept. He was up fearfully early, said George, you know Cecil. Perhaps Mr. George has got it, miss, said Veronica. Oh, really, it doesn't matter, said Daphne, and coloured at the disclosure of her private worry. Got what? said George, with an anxious look of his own. So Daphne had to say to him, I wondered if Cecil had found a chance to write in my little album, that's all. I expect he wrote something or other. Cess is rarely at a loss for words. I expect he's left it somewhere, Daphne said, and spread some butter on her toast, though really her smothered anxiety had squeezed up her appetite to nothing. She looked at her brother with a cold smile. So what are you doing today, George? She said, conscious of denying him a talk on the obvious subject. Eh? Oh, I'll find something, he said, with a hint of pathos. He was leaning against the doorpost, neither in nor out, the maid sidling past him back into the hall. Daphne saw him decide to speak, and as he started airily, no, it was a shame Cecil couldn't stay longer, she said, I've invited Olive for tea tomorrow. I haven't seen her since they got back from Dawlish. She knew Olive Watkins was small beer after Cecil, and Dawlish after the Dolomites, where Cecil had been climbing, and she felt ashamed and almost sad as well as defiant in mentioning her. But she couldn't indulge George in his present mood. It rubbed up too closely against her own. Oh, have you, said George, startled and bored. Daphne saw she produced a particular kind of family atmosphere, and that itself was depressing after the wider horizons of Cecil's visit. Also, she really wanted her book back to show Olive whatever it was that Cecil had written. This had been her main purpose in asking her to tea. Then Veronica, with her own bored persistence, looked back in and said, I asked Jonah, miss. He's having a look. Thank you, said Daphne, feeling oppressed now by the public nature of the search. <laughs> Jonah's looking in his room now. I mean, he's looking in Mr. Valance's room. And George, without saying anything more, drifted away, and then Daphne heard him going rather stealthily, she thought, upstairs as well, two at a time. She told herself, without fully believing it, that probably, after all, Cecil would have put nothing but his name and the date. A minute later, George came back down with Jonah at his heels and Daphne's mauve album open in his hands. My word, sis, he said abstractedly, turning the page and continuing to read. He's certainly done you proud. What is it, said Daphne, pushing back her chair, but determined to keep her dignity, almost to seem indifferent. Not just his name, then. She could see it was much, much more. Now that the book was here, open in the room, she felt quite frightened at the thought of what might come out of it. The gentleman left it in the room, said Jonah, looking from one to the other of them. Yes, thank you, said Daphne. George was blinking slowly and softly biting his lower lip in concentration. 
He might have been pondering how to break some rather awkward news to her as he came and sat down across from her, placing the book on the table, then turning the pages back to start again. Well, when you've finished, Daphne said tartly, but also with reluctant respect. What Cecil had written was poetry, which took longer to read, and his handwriting wasn't of the clearest. Goodness, said George, and looked up at her with a firm little smile. I think you should feel thoroughly flattered. Oh, really, said Daphne, should I? It seemed George was determined to master the poem in its secrets before he let her see a word of it. No, this is quite something, he said, shaking his head as he ran back over it. You're going to have to let me copy this out for myself. Daphne drained her teacup completely, folded her napkin, glanced across at the two servants, who were smiling stupidly at the successful retrieval of the book, and also formed a somewhat inhibiting audience to this agitating crisis in her life, and then said as lightly as she could, don't be such a tease, George. Let me see. Of course, it was a tease, the latest of thousands, but it was more than that, and she knew resentfully that George couldn't help it. Sorry, old girl, he said, and sat back at last and slid the album towards her. Thank you, said Daphne. If you could see your face, said George. She pushed her plate aside. Will you take all this, please, to the maid, who did so with gaping slowness, peering at the columns of Cecil's black script as though they confirmed a rather dubious opinion she'd formed of him. Thank you, said Daphne again sharply, and frowned and coloured, unable to take in a word of the poem. She had to find out at once what George meant that she should be flattered. Was this it, the sudden helpless breaking of the news? Perhaps not, or George would have said something more. The harder she looked at it, the less she knew. Well, it was called simply Two Acres, the name of the house, and it ran on over five pages, both sides of the paper, she flicked back and forth. Formally, it's rather simple, said George, for Cecil. Well, quite, said Daphne, just regular tetrameter couplets. <laughs> that will be all, said Daphne, and waited while Veronica and Jonah went off. Really, they were most irritating. She flicked further back for a moment to the Reverend Barstow with his scholarly flourish, and then forward to Cecil, who had broken all the rules of an autograph book with his enormous entry and made everyone else look so feeble and dutiful. <laughs> It was unmannerly, and she wasn't sure if she resented it or admired it. His writing grew smaller and faster as it sloped down the page. On the first page, the bottom line turned up sideways at the end to fit in. Chaunticleer, she read, which was a definite poetry word, though she wasn't precisely sure of its meaning. <laughs> I suppose you'll be publishing it somewhere, said George, the Westminster Review or somewhere. Do you think, said Daphne? as levelly as she could, but with a quick, strong feeling that the poem was hers, after all. Cecil hadn't just written it here in her book by chance. She was still trying to see if it said things about her personally, or if it was simply about the house and the garden. The Jenny nettle by the wall that some the devil's plaything call. That was a conversation she'd had with him, now quite simply turned into poetry. Her father had called stinging nettles devil's playthings. It was what they called them in Devon. She felt thrilled and a little bewildered at being in on the very making of a poem and at something else magical, like seeing oneself in a photograph. What else would be revealed? The book left out beneath the trees, read over backwards by the breeze. The spinney where the lisping larches kiss overhead in silver arches and in their shadows lovers too might kiss and tell their secrets through. Again, the minutely staggered and then breathtaking merging of word, image, and fact. 
she was really going to have to read this somewhere apart in private. I think it would be most appropriate to read this in the garden, she said, getting up and feeling very slightly sick. But just then her mother appeared in the doorway with her heavy morning face and her bright morning manner. In fact, her manner was flustered. There was something behind her smile. Word must already have got through. Beyond her, Veronica loitered, the informer. Well, child, her mother said, and gave Daphne a strange, eager look. What excitement? Everyone can see it when I've finished reading it, said Daphne. People seem to be forgetting that it's my book. Well, of course, dear, said her mother, going round the table and opening a window as if to show she had other useful things to do. And then, you've obviously made quite an impression on him, not using Cecil's name out of some awful delicacy. She gave Daphne a teasing glance that had something new to it, a sense of girding herself for some welcome parental obligation. Mother, he was only here for three nights, said George, almost crossly. All Cecil has done, with his customary generosity, is to write a poem about our house as a thank you for the visit. I know, dear, said their mother, with a little flinch at her two prickly children. He's been most generous to Jonah, too. George got up and went to the window and looked out in the manner of someone who wants to say something firm but difficult. The poem's really nothing to do with Daphne. Isn't it, said Daphne, shaking her head. Wasn't it? It was there, she had seen it at once, the lover's kiss in the shadows, telling their secrets. But of course she couldn't say that to either of them. I suppose I should be sorry he didn't write a poem for you. George's pitying look was focused on the cherry trees outside. As a matter of fact, he has written a poem for me. Oh, George, you never said, said their mother. You mean just now? No, no, last term sometime. It really doesn't matter. Well, said their mother, trying to maintain a tone of bewildered amusement, rather a fuss about a poem. There's no fuss, darling, said George, now in a brightly patient tone. It's too lovely to have a poem written for you at all, in my view. I quite agree, said Daphne, and the feeling that everything was being spoiled welled up inside her. I'm beginning to feel very sorry that I mentioned it, said their mother, if Cecil's visit has to end in this kind of childish bickering. Oh, read it if you want to, said Daphne, pursing her lips against tears and flapping through the book to give it to her open at the right page. Her mother looked at her sharply, and after a moment, and quite gently, took it from her. Thank you. And now if the girl could run for my glasses. And when Veronica came back, their mother sat down at the dining table and addressed herself with a quizzical but sporting look to the poem that had just been written about her house. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, almost immediately, pretty much immediately, um, Cecil's poem um, becomes open to sort of interpretation and a sort of appropriation, I think. To what extent the, do these things happen accidentally or deliberately? Well, um, the question of what's... Yes, Cecil's poem is, is published, not, I think, not particularly noticed until after he dies. Um, before he published it, which was after the beginning of the war, he added a, a little rather bellicose um, quatrain to the end of it. Um, and after he's killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme in 1916, um, Winston Churchill writes a piece about him in the Times and, and quotes from Two Acres. Um, and Two Acres becomes um, a poem which seems to encapsulate an, a nostalgic vision of, of um, the England that everybody is fighting for and that is in danger of being lost. Um, 
Cecil takes on the quite natural, I mean, he's a glamorous figure already. Um, he takes on the quite natural, enhanced glamour um, of uh, a, a dashing, brave, clever young man uh, killed in the, the trenches. In the second section of the book, we, we see the first attempt um, to write his life, which is something very closely minded indeed by Cecil's terrifying mother, old, old Lady Valance. Um, and it becomes quite clear to everybody that this book is actually not going to tell any of the truth about Cecil's private life. Um, and that it, it, uh, the man who is writing it, who is himself clearly in love with Cecil, um, had adored Cecil, um, uh, is under strong pre pressure to, to produce a highly sort of sanitized view of what his life was like. Um, and what I hope to suggest in the book is that this poem, like a lot of other poems from that period, though not particularly good, as I, you will see, uh, sort of enters into public consciousness. And it's something which people know um, odd couplets from and phrases from. Um, and it, it sort of becomes much later, in, you know, uh, nearly 90 years after the war, people are sort of saying, oh, yes, isn't that the poem about so-and-so, and quoting little bits of it. You must have had great fun. There were, you create little snippets of the poem during the course of the book. You must have had great fun with that, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, I could write bad poetry till the cows come home. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't, a, wasn't a problem. I mean, it, it was important. I'm quite interested in, in that sort of sad substratum of you know, minor, minor poets. I spent an unhealthy amount of my life re reading things like the Georgian anthologies and so on. Um, and uh, there's something very poignant about that whole sort of secondhand bookshop world of, of once massively printed and hi highly acclaimed works which are now entirely sort of disregarded. Um, so I find it quite easy to enter into that, that mode, yes. Uh, yeah. Speaking of second-hand bookshops and such, there's a very moving sequence towards the end of the novel where um, a book uh, dealer is offered a collection of letters. Um, and he, he thinks to him something like, he said he knows he would find, these are between two men, these letters, and that he knows he would find uh, a buyer for these letters because it's like secrets being passed on. And you, there's, a great sense that, there's a great sense of sadness somehow in this that um, even perhaps, this sequence is almost in the, mod, in the present day, that even in the present day there is still a desire to pass on secrets. There's a, a lack of openness, it seems to me. Well, there's a fascination, I suppose, with things which have been secret. One of the things I suppose the book traces is a, is a change in what can be said, and what in particular can be said about um, intimate relations between men. And in the first part of the book, you know, it's in, nothing can be said about it, really. I think in the, the 1920s section, that there's a, a more liberated atmosphere in which young Daphne finds herself sort of rather um, confusedly bobbing along. Um, that 1967 moment of, of the passing of the sexual offences bill sort of heralds a whole new era, which I think affects the, the last part of the book. Um, I had very much in, in mind that great biography by Michael Holroyd of Lytton Strachey, who is someone that Cecil has known at, um, at Cambridge, um, someone that George is rather wary of, I think because of his great sort of outspokenness of, about gay matters. Um, and Michael Holroyd's book came out with sort of uncanny timing just a few months after the, the passing of the, the Sexual Offences Act. And it was the first book which wrote openly and unembarrassedly about the, the private life of the gay writer. I mean, very significant, I think, um, as well as being a masterpiece in, it, in itself. And um, 
over the coming decades, this, this sort of ushered in a, a period of, of new freedoms and a new sense of what, what might be said about her writing. You know, Forster had died in 1970 or 71. Um, Morris, his gay novel, which he'd, he'd written originally before the First World War, was finally published. Um, various writers were outed. You know, there was a, um, so I think there was an exhilarated sense of new freedoms, um, as well as possible dangers in such freedoms. Um, and the young biographer that we see finally tackling in the early 1980s, a biography of, of Cecil, uh, perhaps gets rather carried away with the sense of, of the kind of speculation about his private life that's then possible. You mentioned when the Lytton Strachey book came out, and am I right that you were doing your own postgraduate research on three gay writers at around that time, the mid to late 60s? Well, it, it was a bit, no, I was still 13. Of course, deep, deeply interested in the subject, but I wasn't ready to tackle it from, from a scholarly perspective. Um, um, no, I started doing that thesis in 1975, I suppose. But yes, I mean, that's an, an instance of, I, mean, I, I was sort of exploring that new atmosphere of, of possibility, I think. Yeah. Um, when I read the book, that I, I had, as a reader, I had a sense of, a sense of coming, as it were, a sort of full circle to your first novel, The Swimming Pool Library, which, um, again, juxtaposes, in that case, just two periods of history, um, and again, in which one character writes a biography of another. And again, I, there was a sense of, in, in that great novel, of, of um, the hidden history, the, the sort of hidden gay history yeah. being explored by a, a young man in the present day. Um, was there any sense in your mind, either now or when writing the book, that there was a sense of completeness to this, or am I just imagining this? It really didn't strike me at the time. Um, one of the models I had for the kind of um, this episodic structure in this book was um, the great Canadian short story writer Alice Munro, and in, in one of her books um, called Runaway, she has a marvelous series of three stories, which are three episodes in the life of one woman, with the most startling sort of changes and th uh, have, have happened in, in the gaps between these episodes. And I was very um, impressed by that as a, as a possible model for this episodic structure, which I seem to have landed on. Um, and it was only really after I finished the book, which it struck me that the structure of the swimming pool library also entailed um, the, a present-day a present narrative um, into which were dropped little episodes from the past of, of, of again, sort of covering the, the century. And it seems rather dim-witted of me to say that I, it only struck me afterwards, but I, I clearly was drawn to the same model, but with a huge difference that it was essential in this book that, that there's no framing narrative. I didn't, it's rather like it, wanting to get rid of any element of, of pastiche. I didn't want there to be any sort of historicizing gauze through which the narrative was being viewed. I wanted everything to be happening you know, in, in the ignorant presence in which everybody lives with no sense of, of what's going to come afterwards. Of course, in the later parts of the book, people are looking back trying to reconstruct what, what happened before. Um, so, um, and that, that, I think, is rather different because in the Swimming Pool Library, you know, we're, we're ironically in possession of a later history. Yes. Um, you, one of the things as well I think the book is about is about memory, um, faulty memory oftentimes and sometimes not. Um, I wanted, wanted to ask you about the sequence. There's a sequence in which a character lives um, above a bank, um, as you did, I think. Please tell me you did, um, as a child. Um, could, you, could you just talk a bit about writing about something that you actually do have knowledge of? In, 
if you're using that instance. Yes. Well, I mean, yes, I, mean, I, was, I was saying how the, writing the first two parts of the book was, um, you know, it was completely made up and had this, uh, this sort of literary, inevitably literary dimension to it. When it came to writing the section set in 1967 when I was 13, um, it, it was, um, I assumed that this would be easier, but actually I found it far harder because the whole, um, the deadly little question of selection or whatever Henry James calls it, um, it's so much more complicated when you have, you know, actually abundant memory of that period yourself. Um, but equally, it, it, it has, has the, the possibilities of plunging into, I mean, memory is a writer's greatest resource, so one's always using one's memory in one way or another. But in, in that case, just having whole episodes, an episode of my own early life, I mean, I spent the first eight years of my life living in um, the house above a bank in a little uh, market town. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it for decades, but in fact, I, it was almost as if I put myself under hypnosis or something. I could remember exactly what the bank had been like. Um, and when the bank had closed, I would sort of go down and sort of play behind the tills and so on. So I, I, I found myself sort of with all this material ready to hand, which was rather a relief. Um, just one more question, if I may, and then we'll open up to questions from the floor. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that your last novel, The Line of Beauty, uh, won the Man Booker Prize in uh, 2004. Uh, did that have any obvious, I mean, any effect on your life, on your work? You, you mentioned that this novel took you four and a half years, which implies a gap of a couple of years. There was this, usually I get the sort of, uh, the first sort of prickle of a new book novel just when I'm finishing the previous one, which is sort of reassuring. Um, that didn't happen on this occasion. As I say, I had this ide these ideas for stories, and I think I felt very... I mean, my, the, the Line of Beauty had been a big sort of excavation of my past in another way, I suppose, and I, I'd had to plunge back into the, that whole um, period and ethos of the 1980s, which was quite sort of lowering in itself. And um, I think I, I just didn't really know what I was, was going to do next. So it took me an unusually long time for this, this book to come together. And then I went about it, my, I, I think, my usual, very, very slow way. Um, of course, I mean, the, the, it's wonderful winning the, the booker, and it, it makes you much more widely known, and means you earn lots more money. And I enjoyed it, and sort of, I got, sort of got the most out of it I could, I think. Um, and I traveled a huge amount, sort of talking about the book, until I couldn't bear to talk about it any longer. Uh, and I realized that actually there was something about winning the book which was actually inimical to, to writing and it, it kept me from my desk for a long time. So I just pulled the shutters down then and got, got, on, got on with the new book. We take some questions? Of course. Uh, very happy to take some questions. Um, we have colleagues with radio mics. It's very helpful if you let them come to you uh, so that everybody else can hear the question. Um, Bob, I can see a hand towards the back on the center there. Oh, great, brilliant. Um, I was really interested in the poem because we never get the whole poem, do we, as a reader in the book, although it's there constantly. And I just wondered if you had written a complete two acres poem <laughs> that you just give us these little snippets of. It's like a bit of a tease, isn't it, going through. We keep getting these little bits. And why you'd done that, really? Um, no, I, I mean, I think I did originally, I kept saying, you know, Next Monday, I sort of played a task, you know, write two acres. Um, and uh, and I, I realized I was rather dreading doing it. And then when I sort of discovered that the thing, that it was actually going to be a poem that was 
referred to rather than uh, needing to be read from end to end. I realized for great relief I didn't have to produce the. I mean, I, I, as I was saying, I think I could have produced a lot more of it. Um, but it became really part of the idea of the book, was that you know, it, 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 it was something which was known but not entirely present. Um, I mean, that's very much a theme of the book, I think, where, where, where people sort of half know things or they've sort of vaguely heard something and no one in the end is really quite sure what they know about anything, I mean, about other people's lives or even perhaps about their own. Um, there's a hand roughly level about in the middle there. Thank you. I loved the book, and um, I was going to say the bit you read out was, was, was funny, and it was received as being funny. But I, I found it very, you know, profoundly beautiful and elegiac. Um, and uh, to me, there was a, a sort of project about the impossibility of life writing, of, of actually recapturing a life, um, that we try to go back into the past and, and get what happened. You give us the inner lives, very textured, of, of, of the characters at, at different times. But, but the mystery to me is Cecil's brother, um, who has a very important role and has clearly had a very distressing war. Um, and we don't really get inside his head. And in particular, I wondered about the pianola, which is a device, a symbol of repetition or of ghost music. The music plays yeah. and you, you don't see the hands moving. I wondered whether that was just a symbol that kind of came to you spontaneously or whether you'd kind of thought through. Um, this is an architectural symbol as well about architecture being covered over, which is in itself derivative, and then it's, and then it's uncovered. So that there's, a, there's a whole theme there about, about objects. Yes, that's right. Um, the pianola, someone had, did, I think Lady Ottilie Morrill had a, had a pianola, which was, uh, the pianola seemed to be the opposite of the piano, which is really the, you know, the, the sort of passionate instrument of, of, of the book. The, the pianola, as you say, is mechanical and, and repetitive, and it seemed to me to be right for that sort of rather frenetic sort of social 1920s moment of dancing foxtrots and things. You know, a, a frenetic social life sort of thinly veiling the, the sort of still unhealed sort of chaos of, of, of what had happened to people in the, in the war. Um, yes, I mean, I had to take a decision about whose inner lives we were privileged to, to visit. Uh, and doing so was, in a way, one of the most difficult Things. And I think one of the things which made me hesitate a long time before starting the book, you know, who, whose, whose point of view was it going to be seen from? And originally I think I thought the whole of the first part might be seen from Daphne's point of view, but then I realized that it really needed to be ironized by the other activities, um, the other points of view of three or four people in the, in the household. Um, and then I saw that, of course, the point was that, uh, uh, as you say, the actual... Um, pure truth of what went on at this weekend can never be known and the account of it will be, one of the accounts of it will be hers but other accounts of it will be other people's some of them never actually told um, and so actually it, it was sort of um, essential to the, the whole idea and design of the book that, that there would be no sort of master narrative but well, one would sort of drop in on, on different characters at different moments um, I think it's, it's very hard not to be sceptical about the materials on which a lot of life writing is based. And Daphne, in, in her 80s, has a sort of riff on this towards the end of the book in a, a long, sleepless night. She's actually produced a volume of memoirs herself. I mean, they're not really about herself, but they're sort of portraits of famous people she's known. And she realizes, she considers the, the, the fallibility of her own memory and acknowledges that when, when she was writing these, 
things. She, she really couldn't remember anything that anybody had said, but you know, she, made, she was pretty sure they'd said something like that within five or the outside ten years of when she said they said. Um, and I think that's very, you know, often in, unless memoirs are based on, on journals written at the time, where they obviously have a stronger, though still fallible foundation, um, they're so liable to be fictional. I mean, I think it's when you see detailed accounts of verbatim, apparently, accounts of conversations people had 40 years ago. Um, I mean, I think it's very hard to remember more than a few words that anybody said three weeks ago. You know? um, I really do. And I, I, I'm more and more struck by this. So that, I mean, that is certainly, you're right. It is, it is a Other question? Yeah, just here. Um, you're, you're very scathing about the literary biographer in The Stranger's Child, and I was wondering if... Sorry, after, about what? About the literary biographer in The Stranger's Child, and I was wondering if afterwards people got more nervous about interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I have definitely reflect on this same occasion in the midst of between two days of being interviewed herself. And she, she realizes that this young man who's interviewing her is pretending that he is her friend, um, something she says probably no interviewer ever was, um, and the, the interview is a sort of simulacrum of a, a friendly conversation, and often quite happily sort of emerges as that at the end, um, but that's not actually what it is. What it is is someone trying to make another person say something indiscreet, and uh, that's precisely what's happening here. So. Uh, <laughs> Um, yes, possibly. People have been more, <laughs> a little more wary. Yeah, over there. At the back, there. Balance is the name. It's a very feminine in a bed and breakfast way. <laughs> Was that intentional? I've had a lot of trouble arriving at that name, and I can't now quite remember how I did, but I was quite pleased by the sense that a balance, as you say, that rather <laughs> horrible thing that you can buy in John Lewis, which sort of cover, covers up the sins of the, 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 what's underneath the bed. Um, it seemed, seemed to be a, a, poss a possibly amusingly ironic name for this. But it also, you know, ha has, it's hard to erase the balance, sort of John Lewis idea if you've got it in your mind. Um, but, but, you know, it has ec echoes of, of valor and so on in, in it as well. Um, yes. <laughs> So hand over there. Like the lady who spoke before, I was particularly impressed by that, that reading again, how you were reading that, that section of almost social comedy, very Faustian in, in, in tone. But inside that is this issue about Daphne being concerned about the publicity of the search. And I just thought about, you know, about publicity of the search and about the ownership of texts and so on. One of the many echoes, like the, the echoes of the literature throughout history, is also of a contemporary novel, was Possession, um, which also is about different levels of privacy and, yes. uh, and, and whether that search can be public, private, and what those meanings are that are uncovered. I don't know if that's an echo or also there's something new being added to that, that thematic. Well, there's an echo of Possession. We've so, yes. I mean, partly the, the earlier question about not wanting to write the whole poem, you know, was feeling that I didn't want the, this 
not very good poetry to, to form too substantial a sort of part. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say. Uh, uh, too substantial a part of the text of, of my book. Um, and I, I, but I, you know, A.S. Pyatt did it, did it you know, incredibly cleverly, actually. But I, um, I, could, I saw the temptation of another kind of novel of literary detection and thought I might have things to do with various ver versions of Cecil's poems being analysed in more detail and the idea which we glimpse later on that Sebastian Stokes, who edits them and writes this memoir in the 1920s, has actually rewritten them. And sort of, um, but actually, I, I, that, wasn't sort of, you know, that could have been fun, but it wasn't what I was... Um, really preoccupied with in this book. Yeah, down the front here, second row here. One of the things that you share with your friend Edward St. Alban is this ability to, modern, with great mordant wit and acuity, dissect social facades and the tiniest gestures and just to observe the meaning underneath it. Is this something that comes to you easily when you're sitting in a social situation, you can just see the meaning underneath people's sort of... <laughs> you're worried about what I'm going to write tonight, am I? <laughs> and the second part of my question, which is unrelated, is that one of the th many themes that fascinated me about A Stranger's Child is um, the theme of self-delusion, the fact that Daphne convinces herself that this poem is about her in the face of evidence that she's seen you know, the fumbling in the garden and things, and yet she manages to delude herself. And, and is that something you're interested in, the ability of people to self-delude despite the evidence? Well, it, is, it is part of the same question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, no, I, I, mean, I don't know why. I mean, I, yes, I, I, I have always been interested in that sort of anal analysis of behavior and the, the, the undertones and overtones of what people say and the, the clear presence of the, un, the unsaid things in any conversation. Um, and to me, that's one of the, I mean, some reviews of this book have got rather fed up with it, I think, it's just too much of it. But actually, that, that seems to me a sort of supremely interesting and often potentially quite comic thing because it's an ironic device. You know, you're sort of, um, you're exploding um, something by revealing it, it's sort of concealed opposite. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so self-delusion self would come into that a great, deal, not only what people are conscious of concealing from other people, what they're unconscious of concealing from themselves. Oh. Another question? Yeah, the gentleman here in the black t-shirt. Could you see yourself writing a novel about um, Middle England? And Where is that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know, outside NW3. I don't, I sound like I mean, society is changing, and I guess views and, and, and perceptions about great families and, and the upper middle class, the past, are, are disappearing. Is it going to be a harder genre to continue? <laughs> yeah. um, yes, I'm, aw I'm aware of a sort of an interesting going back into the into the past. A novel of middling. Well, I mean, I can't think what what would. I mean, I certainly wouldn't set out deliberately to write such a thing. Um, I'm not quite sure of the purport of the question, really. Well, it, it, it's just been in, said that in, in the, the subjects for your novels have kind of quoted, have concentrated on a particular stratum of, of society. And the question is, is, is this something that you would continue with or you, could you, you see yourself extending your views to more broader based. Oh, you mean middle middle classes, yeah. right? By middling. Um, 
Yes, I mean, actually, I mean, this book, you know, it starts off with, with a, a sort of middle-class girl, but, uh, her brother being fascinated by an upper-class person. Um, but, you know, there's a huge change in class perceptions and the sort of the value that is attached to class by people in class and people outside it um, throughout the nearly 100 years that the book covers. Um, Daph Daphne is someone who's sort of drawn into this world, which then sort of expels her, I suppose. Or, I mean, she, she, she doesn't want to remain in it. I mean, it's very complicated to analyze. Um, and she ends up in a state of sort of pathetic de dependency on an upper-class person uh, with sort of no place of her own. Um, I suppose that's rather analogous to, to what happens in my previous book, The Line of Beauty, where someone is sort of magnetized by a glamorous, richer world and then expelled from it. Um, and I suppose both books offer, ironically, some sort of critical commentary of those, those worlds. Um, but I think we see at the end, in the early part of the book, the power is all in the, the, the hands of the, uh, the rich people who are determining how this history is going to be seen. At the end of the book, it, it's not like that at all. Yep, further back on the aisle. I, I think I've read all of your books, and I, I love this book. Going through the time when they came out, at least for me, there's been such a change in acceptance of, of gay people. We have gay marriage. Well, you don't. We do. And, and, and gay bookstores are closing in the United States because it doesn't seem to be needed anymore. Does that affect your writing? Do you, do you notice that? Um, well, of course, I, I notice that, yes. Um, there's been an enormous sort of social change over the quarter century or so since I um, started writing my first book, um, you know, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, I think one, one reason that I perhaps keep you know, having a continuing interest in writing about gay lives, I keep going back to earlier periods, is that there are periods in which gay life was sort of more inherently dramatic and problematic. Um, and I do count the, the sort of social advances that have been made as hugely more important than the social disadvantages to me of finding the gay world less interesting to write about now than it was. Um, yes. What was the, is that, does that answer your question? If you, in your writing now, I mean, this latest book, to me, it's only tangentially gay. And I can remember when the Swimming Pool Library came out and Folding Star was like, gay friends were saying, oh, you've got to read this book. Oh, you can buy it in West Hollywood. They're not Hollywood. saying that anymore. No, I mean, those books were very purposely gay books, and, it, and particularly the, my first book, it, I mean, a lot of its, its point was to explore this, you know, before relatively unexplored territory, and it had a sort of novelty and urgency about it, which I just don't feel any longer. Um, it was part of a sort of political moment. Um, the point of the ultimate objective of any sort of liberation movement or whatever must be you know, no longer to exist. And so, um, I mean, the, it's not quite as simple as that. And, you know, I, I rather mourn the, the passing of famous gay bookstores and so on when I go back to New York or somewhere, some famous store is, is no longer there. Um, but, you know, set against that, there are sort of marvelous advances in social attitudes and so forth. Yep, the lady there, which will need to be the last one, with a hand up there with the black top. Good evening. Uh, 
greatly enjoyed the line of beauty, and I've just purchased uh, *Stranger's Child* this evening. Good. Very much reading that. Um, hearing um, your description of the verse, it reminded me rather of the way John Major tried to conjure up a picture <laughs> of Britain with uh, ladies, old maids cycling to church uh, on their, their bicycles. I, I just wondered, just interested to really to hear your views on on how you see a country. This whole notion of patriotism—is there more to it than trite, jingoistic verse? Is there something beyond <laughs> that in defense? Is... <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you see Britain? How do you see Britain today? You've obviously been I think, extremely... I think I really can't start answering such large um, socio-political questions. Um, I'd rather just answer questions about my practice as a novelist on this occasion. Um, just squeeze in one more then, very quickly. Yeah, over the gentleman here, third row. Um, can I just ask if you're going to give the short stories another crack, or are you firmly a novel man from now on? Um, I'd love to write another. I've written two short stories, one when I was uh, 26 and one when I was uh, 51. So I think at this rate I should write another one in my <laughs> mid-70s. So if I'm lucky, if I'm spared, I, I should produce another one. Yeah. Thank you. We look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, as I said at the beginning, uh, Alan will be signing copies of his books uh, in the signing tent adjacent to this venue. If you wouldn't mind, I'd ask you at the end of the event that you let us exit first so that he can get set up around in the signing tent. But first of all, please join me in thanking Alan Hollinghurst. Thank you very much. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.